This is the Blossom of Thought podcast, a podcast about the body, mind, and soul. And your host is Impilo Kambule. Today we seek to tap into the record, the establishment, historical development of the All African People's Revolutionary Party, a political party engaged in organizing all people of African descent for the total liberation and unification of Africa under an all-African socialist government. I've invited seasoned organizers from the party who have done organizing for decades. These are John Tremble and Albi. John Tremble is in Azania, occupied Azania, that is South Africa. Albi is in West Africa, Ghana. Albi was initially joined the Pan-African movement while a university student in the United States of America in the 1980s. A long-time member of, of the All-African People's Revolutionary Party or the AAPRP, he has lived and worked in Ghana since 2000. He has traveled extensively in Africa and he has represented the AAPRP on various platforms and programs in Africa, Europe, and the USA. His work has involved meeting and working with various Pan-African organizations in different countries as well as extensive work with students of all ages. Among other things, in Ghana he currently works with students, youth, and the community at large in an effort to help organize and advance the Pan-African movement. Now turning to John Tremble. John Tremble is an educator and organizer with the Azania Tad chapter of the All African People's Revolutionary Party. John holds a master's degree from Stanford University in computer science and from UC Berkeley in operations research as well as a PhD in system engineering from Georgia Tech. In 2015, John retired as an associate professor in systems and computer science at Howard University. John was, has recently retired as a professor in industrial engineering at Tswana University. University of Technology in Azania or South Africa. Dr. Tremble's numerous research interests include the study and development of appropriate technology for national development in Africa and underdeveloped regions. Living over two years in Zimbabwe it gives Dr. Tremble a good understanding of the impact of sanctions on the people. Working in Rwanda from 2006 to 2008 gave him a clear picture of the aftermath of genocide and the determination of African people to rebuild. Since 2014, Tremble has lived in South Africa, working closely with the Pan-Africanist Congress of Azania, that is the PAC, and the Azanian People Organization, or ZAPO. is a co-founder of the Worldwide Pan-African Movement, an effort to build a coalition of Africanist organizations. Dr. Tremble can be called on to speak on a range of topics. So we are grateful to have this cadre of the All-African People's Revolutionary Party coming in here the subject matter, we just want to capture the establishment and the history of the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. Let me first uh, start this by welcoming each one of uh, the cadre members of the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. I will begin with uh, John Tremble in occupied Azania, South Africa. Welcome, John. Good to be here. Thank you for organizing this. Well, I appreciate you making time. I know Azania, we have got a lot of episodes of Lord Shedding, uh, at least now you you have light and you can connect with us. We appreciate that. And then now I will turn to Albi Walls. Albi Walls is in Ghana, as I've mentioned uh, at the head of this introduction. Uh, welcome, comrade. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. We appreciate you making the time also that we can record this. I believe this is an important record because 
some of the people who are new in the party, they would like to understand the party that is involved in such magnitude of work uh, throughout Africa or organizing all people of African descent uh, for the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Well, to begin with, uh, may I pose just a few questions to each one of you before we just talk about the party itself. Let's deal with each one of you, how you joined the party, when you joined the party, and just a little bit about your organizing. Maybe I'll, be, I'll go back uh, to Albi. Comrade Albi, can you talk uh, talk to the record about you joining the party just briefly? Uh, sure. Um, well, briefly, I was a university student when the first seeds of Pan-Africanism were kind of, well, at least some early seeds were planted in my mind at that time. Uh, I studied a little bit while in university about African history and culture. It was my first kind of exposure to, at, you know, at that as a older, younger adult, I guess, being exposed to some of those ideas. I ultimately had a chance to travel to Africa uh, and spent about six, six, seven weeks in West Africa. Happened to uh, experience a, an attempted coup in the country where I was and was under lockdown. And one of the, there was a book in the lockdown called uh, Class Struggle in Africa. So that was my first exposure to Kwame Nkrumah and, and the whole notion of Pan-Africanism. So I read the book like there was nothing else I could do locked up in the house. So I read this book and it was explaining to me everything that was happening outside the walls of the compound in terms of the shootings and why people were upset and why there were foreign soldiers and all that kind of thing. So after that, I returned back to the U.S. and you know pretty much followed the course of Pan-Africanism ever since. So now where were you from, from the U.S.? The 20, 25 years. So where were you born? And because uh, you say you're talking about that you went to West Africa and then returned to the U.S. You didn't mention that. And when did you join? Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, I was, born, I was born in the U.S. and attended university there. So my that was my first 20 years, I guess, there in that point up to, to finishing uh, university and then continued to work in the U.S. for another 15 years or so before moving to Ghana. Well, you moved to Ghana in 1980, right? Nine, no, in 2000. 2000, I moved oh, to 2000. Ghana. Permanently. I traveled, but I had lived here prior to that. No, great. We appreciate that uh, background. Uh, let me turn to John. John, can you uh, talk to the same question that I've asked Abby in terms of you? joining the party and your organizing work with the party? Uh, well, I, I first joined the work-study circle after Kwame Ture spoke at Stanford University in February 1975. I had done other organizing before that, and one of the things that motivated me to uh, to join the party was I, I had worked with African Liberation Day, and before that I had actually uh, organized a committee at HP where I had been working the past two years to investigate their involvement in South Africa and was very disappointed in the fact that uh, uh, they didn't divest from South Africa. So, But in the process of doing that, I gained contacts with the PAC and, and other Africanists. And uh, so I was right to join the party in 1975 when Kwame came. So were you also born in the U.S. or you were born? Yes, I was actually born in Chicago, but uh, I had been living in California since uh, 1971. I was a student activist as an undergraduate at Northwestern University and then again at, at Stanford from 71 to 73. And then, But I'd been working for the past two years when I first encountered the party. So I'll be, just to go back to you, did you 
you do any organizing at university level and which university and state were you were you uh, living in yeah, uh, definitely uh, was exposed to community organizing when i was in university in missouri um and uh, so there was quite a bit of uh, community activism campus activism we were engaged in you know we learned about organization through that at least i did through that experience uh, on campus it was anti-apartheid movements and divestiture movements etc in the community it was kind of the same things that we're talking about now in, in some of these racist communities uh, racist police shootings uh, closing down hospitals you know just the difficulty of people getting to, to work or finding jobs so that was some of the community organizing experience that i had or gained when i was there uh in the u.s so now let's get to the question of the party itself the all african people's revolutionary party it has got various sister organizations and it also has got a, a women's wing which is uh, quite fantastic and i've had to attend some of the meetings there and, and realize and get to learn with various cadres and uh, other rank and file members of the all african people's revolutionary party but the question is when was it established and who were the founding members of the all african people's revolutionary party and maybe let me start with john for, on this one well we we recognize the the origins of the all african people's revolutionary party based on the handbook of revolutionary warfare where in 1968 Kwame Nkrumah clearly lays out the call for that so this is the sort of the starting point that we sort of placed in terms of that in terms of that call and we and and after that at or at that point because when he wrote the handbook, he shared that with with uh, both uh, the president of uh, of Guinea at the time, uh, Sekou Touré, and, and also with Emil Cabral. And we know that Kwame Touré, Lamine Janga, and a few others who were in in Guinea Conakry during that late '60s were those that sort of worked under the wing of Sekou Touré and Kwame Nkrumah. So we see that as the firm formation of the first uh, circles, even. Even though it was less formal, but they did, they were very active in terms of studying together and in terms of aiding, particularly Nkrumah and, and Ture in terms of, of their work. So this is what we see the starting point. Now, in terms of officially announcing the party's presence, that came, that didn't come until October 17th, 1972, when the APRP was publicly announced uh, at Howard University at a press conference. Now, that was the same year that Nkrumah had passed that earlier that year in April uh, of 1972. So at that point, the APRP viewed uh, our ideology as incrumism, just as incrumism. So, and you realize that it's largely, Seiko Ture was very active in politicizing and, you know, no one's going to say name my ideology after me. In fact, he would have been very adamant against that. So it, it wasn't until after his passing in March of 1984 that the party, uh, in recognition of his contribution, renamed our ideology in Krumism to Rayism. So that's a bit of history in terms of the chronology of that. Now, in, in 1972, with the early work, there were uh, chapters in only eight areas in the U.S., Connecticut, Washington, D.C., Georgia, Illinois, New Jersey, New York, North Carolina, and Ohio. So it wasn't until later that we had chapters in the West in, in 1974 
was the first presence, for instance, in, in California. Uh, but by 1977, there were party uh, organizers in 26 states across the U.S. So that's just a, let me stop there for just the early part of the history. Yeah. Do you have anything to add to that, uh, Albi, in, in relation to the early part of the history of, of, of the party? <laughs> well, uh, relative, in, ter- in some terms, as an AAPRP, I'm a baby. Uh, I, I didn't come into it uh, as early as others. Uh, Although it seems like it's been a long time, uh, but uh, in terms of those early years, I, I knew of Nkrumah, but uh, and I and I only came to meet uh, Kwame Ture, you know, much later in, in the late seven late seventies, I guess, is when I first encountered Kwame Ture and the AAPRP. Uh, but prior to that, it's kind of legend, <laughs> you know, things that we study and we we hear from from some we know people who who were there, and it's fascinating for us to to be you know to hear the stories and be inspired inspired by the, the experiences that, that they had. Uh, and we have a member here in our Ghana chapter who was, who was there with uh, in the late 60s in Guinea Conakry. So it's always uh, engaging and motivating to you know, hear those kinds of stories. But as far as my own personal experience, uh, no, I haven't uh, haven't experienced that part. I don't know other than what I've read and been told. I, I just like the part that uh, you, we still have living in Ghana, people who were there in the late 60s and early 70s during the time of Kwame Nkrumah and the organizing of uh, the party and Kwame Nkrumah's uh, writings. And he seemed to write uh, prolifically in after after the coup in Ghana. But I don't want to go much in, in to him being toppled there in, in Ghana. But I'm just fascinated by the fact that there are still people that you we can draw from and you have been drawing from and, and, and learning a great deal about how it was like, uh, you know, the establishment of the party uh, working with this great Pan-Africanist. But just for clarity's sake, I will want to labor a little bit more on this question. And the, the thing is, it seems like the party existed underground and then until... 1972, when it was uh, established, I mean, it was announced uh, to the world that there is the All African People's Revolutionary Party. I just want to know quite clearly, uh, for the record, maybe let me just backtrack a little bit. For the record, Kwame Ture is formerly Stokleka Michael, who comes from uh, the United States of America. He was organizing with uh, the Student Non-Violent Coordinating Committee, the Black Panther Party, and the civil rights movement of, 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 of the 50s and 60s in the United States of America. So for people who may not know who Kwame Ture is, because he changed his name from Stoklika Michael to Kwame Ture. So coming back to this existing underground and also uh, being announced, who were the people who were there when it was less formal, when it was established, I would say, meaning existing underground. And then at the time of the announcing, I, I've heard you, John, mentioning that the Kwame Grumman might just passed, if I remember very well. So it seems like we still have a secretary. And I think at that time, Amika Cabral, I think he had passed. I, I do not know. I just want that clarity of the history of these uh, founding members and these Pan-Africans who have done so much work in organizing the African people. I don't know if my question makes sense, John. Well, it's a, it's a difficult question in terms of, of 
there we have no written uh, agreed upon history, in, particularly in terms of those early years. Uh, there were different pre-party formations connected both to those that were organizing in Africa and uh, particularly based on the hard work that Kwame Ture was doing both in Africa. And, and part of what he did was he attracted a number of people who worked with him when he was in SNCC and worked with him in the Black Panther Party. And some of them stayed a year or two and some of them stayed longer. And a lot of that was during that pre-party pre-party formation in those early years of the 70s. So it's even difficult for me because I didn't join the party until 75. So some of this is based on some written documents that I've seen that people have shared. Uh, so I, I really don't want to get into trying to identify all of who was in the pre-formations uh, as much as recognize that it did come out of a legacy of hard work that Kwame Ture had with the Black Panther Party and SNCC so that the, we do know of notable people who did spend quite a bit of time, uh, like David Brothers, who was on the first Central Committee and, and wasn't up till his, his death, uh, and uh, Mukasa, who people know of. Mukasa Dada. Yes, who was on the first Central Committee and is very active in organizing still in terms of, of uh, pushing Pan-Africanism and traveling around, you know, not only around the U.S., but around the world in terms of that. So others, uh, one that that we that stood out in the early Central Committee uh, for years was also passed was Lamine Jenga, who was initially from the Gambia, but did study under uh, Nkrumah in Ghana in the early years, but then came and did work in, in the U.S. in terms of organizing uh, and was instrumental in organizing a number of Africans in the U.S. and Canada who were from the Gambia. So that those are, are some notable points in terms of that. Uh, I, I think that it, it what was instrumental in those early years was the work around African Liberation Day, because African Liberation Support Committee had organized and it initially the party was part of that. But there were different directions that this was going in. Some who were just uh, nationalists who were opposed to apartheid but were not socialists. Some who considered themselves Marxist-Leninists but didn't consider themselves Pan-Africanists. Others considered themselves Maoists. And then you had the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. So it was during this period of, of struggle around African Liberation Day that the party focused in on it. And our position was... We're not here to support Africa. Africa is ours. We are African. So we took a much more serious approach to organizing African Liberation Day. And so we sort of seized the mantle of it by pushing hard in 1974, 75, 76 in terms and 77 in terms of putting people uh, out there in the street, organizing, putting up posters organizing uh, the march rallies so that we could we brought out thousands of people during those years. And that set us apart from other efforts because there were a number of formations that were organizing African Liberation Day at that point because it was a key part of the anti-apartheid effort to organize African Liberation Days. As I mentioned, I first became exposed to African Liberation Day in San Francisco in 1974 before I joined the party. So uh, there was a whole history of organizing that, but then that they were not necessarily all in line with Pan-Africanism. So it's that's a bit of history. Now, one other point I wanted to raise that was key to the party growing in the late 70s was the program committee really took charge in terms of organizing speaking engagements and 
pushing for uh, recruitment. So there were three key program committee meetings that were held in the U.S. and nationally, two of them in Chicago and one in Tennessee. And that, they took place in August of 1976, January 1977, and November 1977. And this is where organizers from around uh, the U.S. and in, 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 uh, particular, but some came from outside, uh, came together. And the, the central leadership sort of really gave us some serious leadership guidance in terms of and direction in terms of how we were to go back out in our respective chapters and organize and recruit. So I think that is what spurred this increase in party growth that we saw in the late 70s. And it culminated in that period, I would call it, culminated in 1978 when we had this massive propaganda campaign we had centered around two major themes. One was smashing Zionism. Another was smash the FBI and CIA, which were at the time really, you know, like volatile topics, you know, telling mm-hmm. to smash Zionism. But what we did was we had posters, we had leaflets, and we were called on to take the posters and we paste them, you know, paste them up on walls around the the, the, the cities and campuses we were working on, which was, which was uh, for some people, uh, uh, a real challenge in terms of, of, of going that far. And the other thing that took place then during that period was we had a petition drive that was calling for the formation of an all-African army to address the the occupation that currently existed at that time. It was initially in, in 1978 in terms of, of Southern Africa. And, and we would call on as organizers to go out on the campuses and communities, getting names and to explaining to people uh, why we needed this army. And it was a, that was a very positive learning experience because it re- required you to interact and explain to people. And uh, so this was, a, this was a certain period in the party that uh, I think was instrumental in our, in our growth. And toward the end of that 70s was when we organized regional, uh, on a regional levels, regional coordinators. Uh, and, and I was the first uh, regional coordinator for the program committee in the Western region and was tasked with then going out and organizing in other areas. Because at that time in 79, we only had a chapter in uh, in Colorado and a chapter in California. So we actually traveled even to Utah <laughs> once <laughs> in terms of trying to reach out to, to different areas. And we were able to then get a formation in Oregon and, and Washington that uh, unfortunately didn't stick that long. So that's just, it sort of takes us up to 1980. One of the questions that I have organizing in the 70s, you know, that is post the civil rights movement and organizations such as the Black Panther Party. You know, one of uh, the founding members, I would say, Gwame Ture, former historical Michael, he comes with this wealth of experience in the Black Panther Party, the civil rights movement and all that. So when you're organizing uh, the propaganda, smash Zionism and and, and, and and other matters relating to FBI, the CIA, what will you say were some of the lessons uh, from the Black Panther Party and the civil rights movement that inspired or contributed uh, to the work of organizing uh, in the 70s in, in terms of smashing Zionism and all stuff like that? I'm not sure that I can say that there, that I can see a, a real relationship. I'm sure that in promoting, Promoting this, 
these the central committee members like David Brothers, who was part of the Panthers, or Bob Brown, who was part of the Panthers, or Kwame Ture, who was both SNCC and Panthers, had, may have had some motivation in terms of how to approach it. I just know that what was emphasized was the importance of propaganda, importance of, of, of reaching out in mass. And this was, I think, a distinction from a lot of other organizational work, which just sort of gave a you 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 handed out a few leaflets or you announced something, but this kind of massive work that we did during that period was was a unique experience, and I, I think that Kwame may have drawn on his his experience in SNCC and organizing in the South on that, uh, and certainly, you know, uh, others who were part of organizing in the Panthers may have drawn on some of that, but I don't know for sure. Do you have uh, anything related to uh, to that, uh, Albi, uh, to mm-hmm. the question of the development of the AAPRP, at least from uh, your rear view or looking backwards and reading and, and stuff like that, because you are seasoned, you've spent a couple of decades organizing in Ghana, West Africa. What have you gathered even from those who are still living who were there early with Nkrumah living in Conakry, Guinea. And- yeah, yeah. Well, there was some similar, I mean, obviously uh, I, I, unique histories in various parts of the world as it relates to Pan-Africanism. We have the you know general overall understanding of the movement and the milestones of the various Pan-African Congresses and whatnot. The All-African People's Congress that was here in, uh, in Ghana in 1958 after Ghana became independent. That's all a critical part of that historical development that led to the outdooring of the AAPRP in 1972 in the U.S. But similarly, immediately after Nkrumah was deposed in 1966, uh, you know, U.S.-inspired, funded, planned, supported coup over his government led by military and police here in Ghana, a lot of the work go- that was going into the development of the uh, the idea and the implementation of an AAPRP as called for Nkrumah was stopped. He had actually started writing the book that John referenced, The Handbook of Revolutionary Warfare, while he was still head of state here in Ghana. But after the coup, of course, they stole and destroyed all of his papers and research, etc. So he basically started back and, and completed when he was in Guinea Conakry. But immediately after the coup in Ghana, the, you know, the CPP had been a very, uh, the Convention People's Party was a very strong, well-organized, dominant political party. So immediately after the coup, the new government, the military government, banned the the CPP. So that left a number of Pan-Africanists in a dilemma. Uh, you know, they many of them went into exile. Some of them were imprisoned. Some of them changed their colors and became anti-CPP. Some of them formed other organizations that were more or less underground CPP because it was illegal to be a member of the CPP at the time. Uh, some, it was even, you know, Nkrumah's books were banned and they burned them. And it was, you know, people were arrested for being supporters of Nkrumah because they were very fearful that he would come back to Ghana. But nonetheless, people, those, there were people here who continued with the ideas of Nkrumah, even though he was no longer in power in Ghana. And they did so sometimes underground, under very harsh you know, military uh, government. Sometimes they could come up a little bit. But through the, throughout the late 60s and early 70s, uh, even up through the, the late 70s, there were primarily military government. And most of the CPP members had, had, had really gone down. They had gone underground the younger members who were university, you know, some of the youth who were kind of the energy behind a lot of uh, Nkrumah's work and his ideas, uh, they too were discouraged, isolated, um, you know, sometimes their families were, were uh, persecuted. And so it really 
became uh, not very strong up until the late 70s when economic conditions in Ghana and much of, you know, many places in Africa became more intense and worse. And the people uh, ultimately had a, another coup, another military government that came to power in 1979, 1981, the same government. They relinquished government for a few months, then came back in 1981. And they prof- that military government was came just after uh, Thomas Sankara in uh, Burkina Faso. And so they were reflecting, I'm sorry, that's just around the same time as Sankara, but they reflected ideas. You know, the leader, military leader went to Cuba, met Castro, and they were reflecting very relatively progressive, even some revolutionary ideas. So the youth were energized and excited about this new military government. Uh, You know, some things play out the same as we're talking about what's happening these days in in, uh, the West Africa Sahel region. But in any case, there was a lot of enthusiasm for the, from the youth who were thinking that Nkrumah was, his ideas were going to be reinstituted. But, and the military government started in that direction. But in 1983, they flipped 180 degrees and went with the IMF World Bank under pre, you know, economic pressures that Nkrumah predicted would happen because we're divided up into these non-viable entities. And Ghana, the military government felt like they, their best choice was to go with the U.S. Wheaton Woods institutions and you know, do all of the things that they required them to do privatized public interests, public properties, harsh reductions in subsidies for fuel, education, all of those things that they, you know, that they generally require, the conditionalities that they require to take these loans. And so at that time in the early 80s, 81, 82, 83, finally in 83 is when they made the, the military government made the flip after a couple of years in power. And then again, those Nkrumahs were, some were arrested, some were killed, some went into exile, some went underground. And so that, and the CPP was still banned at this time. And so it wasn't until almost 20, 25 years after the banning in 1966 that the CPP was able to publicly announce itself again. Then they contested, but by that time, most Nkrumahs and Pan-Africanists had been divided up. Like I said, some had been exiled, killed, started other political parties because they could start other parties, just they couldn't use this name CPP. So by the time the CPP was unbanned, there were many folks who said, we are the authentic CPP, Um, but many were opportunists. They didn't really follow the ideas of Nkrumah. They were taking advantage of the popularity of Nkuma's party and uh, seeking to get the same kind of neo-colonial positions that the other parties were, were, were adopting. Um, and that's basically where we are today. I mean, since that time, uh, since we've had uh, constitutional government, as it's called, since the 1992, there's been you know open elections and the CPP has campaigned, but CPP isn't necessarily the most radical or revolutionary of the organizations that are here. The APRP is not a registered party, so we don't con- test in the electoral process here in Ghana. Um, but we work, we are international political party, and it's primarily comprised of Ghanaians. And so we, you know, strategically have relationships with other organizations, some of whom are standard or traditional electoral parties, uh, and others that are more like independent Pan-African organizations. Most of them are international, as the APRP is, but there are many local uh, Pan-African organizations who are, child- we call them children of Nkrumah. You know, they are grandchildren of Nkrumah. They follow his ideas, but, you know, they weren't uh, birthed birthed while he was around, but they were birthed from his 
from his work and his and his book. Thank you for that history of organizing in West Africa and in Nkrumah and, and and all his writings. I think just before we move on to the objectives and ideology of the All African People's Royal Party, I just want to belabor that point uh, on uh, organizing in Ghana. How is it? How has it been like organizing in Ghana? Obviously, the All African People's Revolutionary Party is Nkrumahism, and that obviously may raise some eyebrows in relation to the CPP. You know, you're saying there was all kind of repression of the ideology of Nkrumah and the, the CPP in, in Ghana. How is it like now that there is some kind of resurfacing or I would say resurrection of Nguma and Ngrumanism as an organizer in Ghana? Yeah, it's, um, as we say, it's, it's good and bad. You know, it's some, there's some challenges as a result of that history. And then there's some, some opportunities or some things that are a little bit easier because of that history. Obviously, well, part of the issue, I was going to say, obviously everyone here knows who Nkrumah is and the fact, you know, the history that there was a coup and he's written a lot of books. But unfortunately, most people have been mis- misinformed and, and lied to about who he is and, and what he said and what his ideas were. So it's a process of relearning or unlearning some things that many people have been taught over the years about him, you know, being a bad person, un- unworthy of any kind of admiration or recognition. In fact, uh, just uh, a week ago, we celebrated uh, the anniversary of his birth on the sep- 21st of September. And it's always a battle as to whether it should even be recognized because his enemies are now in power. You know, mm-hmm. His enemies are now controlling the instruments of government. And so they tried to do their best to kind of rewrite history and say, oh, Nkrumah, he was just kind of a small boy. He did he made some contributions, but he was not as important as, as many people think he was. Um, so there's a battle over what gets taught to the children. Uh, and what you learn and what you're required to, to you know, regurgitate on your exams, etc. And so that battle, it, it brings to light the contradictions because it's, it's very difficult when the battle comes in the open to denounce Nkrumah because it, the evidence is all around us. You know, the, from the infrastructure that was built during his, you know, years of government and basically very little has been done since mm. from the employment rate, from the, you know, the lot, now we're talking about brain drain and people running away to try and find some decent economic opportunities. At that time, people were running to Ghana because of the opportunity. So there's, you know, there's, there's some things that are starkly evident, even if you deny or want to try to deny the contributions or that the ideas of Nkrumah uh, were not, you know, the valid ma- majority of people now who, who've actually had exposure to some of the ideas and some of the work that he did are saying, why did we ever get rid of this person? This is the best leadership we've ever had. Uh, but there's still those who again try to attack on the same rationale. He was a corrupt, he had properties in Europe and all of this, or he was a dictator and imposed himself on the people for life, wanted to be president of Africa. So we're still refuting all of these lies. But once they're once they're touted generally by international, you know, capitalism, then it's difficult to erase generations of miseducation. So but that's the process that we're engaged with. We have clubs and high schools and universities to teach children, you know, actually give them a book by Nkrumah. So they're not told they're not relying on what somebody told them because often the people who are writing the books are the people who are his enemies so obviously that's what they want to, to try and discredit him so we try and say well don't you know it's kind of like being a christian but not reading the bible you know just rely on what the you know what the preacher tells you but if you read the read the book yourself you can come to your own you know use your own critical thinking and come to your own conclusions 
which is not generally what uh, you know what the capitalist system, imperialist system, would want us. So uh, this is the APRP, and here because of the history of Nkrumah, we have again like there there's still many Pan African organizations. Some again who are more revolutionary than others. Some who who are to be honest are opportunists. They they can sense that you know Pan Africanism. You can't come to Ghana and not mention the word Pan Africanism. So they try and connect Pan Africanism to any kind of illegitimate, uh, uh, devious, mischievous kind of organization or project so they can win the will or support or at least give a first look from the population who knows, yeah, we need to look at this African unity thing that Nkrumah was talking about. Where, you know, the situation that we're in now, you know, Ghana with all of, you know, I think we're now number one or number two in gold production. We just passed Azania, but, you know, we're going where the biggest borrower was of money from the IMF and World Bank. So people are questioning if we have all this wealth, why are we in such debt? You know, I think we're like one or two in the, you know, certainly in the top five of most indebted countries on the continent of Africa. So the contradiction is, is becoming more and more clear as people's incomes become less relative to the cost of living and the divide between those who have and those who don't have becomes more extreme. You know, it's, uh, we're, we're trying to anticipate, you know, using the tools of uh, Nkrumah, Ture and Cabral, trying to analyze where things are going and what might happen to flip something. But uh, right now you can see, you can see, you know, the relationship that we have. Well, we have, a, I should mention the number of coal organizations, as I was saying, because CPP was split up, they have many, many children and many, many different organizations now, children, not, you know, political children. And so we kind of, we do kind of come together and work together on various uh, projects and activities because we generally have the same concept of socialism, African unity as primary for in Africa as a base. So we find lot, there's lots of common areas where we can work together to support Palestine or Cuba, uh, oppose foreign interventions in the Sahel, uh, etc. Seems like there's a lot of work uh, to do almost everywhere in Africa to decolonize and uh, to do away with uh, the imperialist lies and capitalist lies that have uh, sunk deep into our minds. And uh, just the story you are telling just shows how much work that still need to be done. You know, to see the repression of uh, those who believed in um, the ideologies of Nkrumah uh, going back to the 70s and so forth is just so fascinating and there's so much work that needs to be done. Because one will expect that in Ghana, that's where there will be more vibrancy. But now you realize that because of the repression, there is a, there is a lot of struggle. This is a struggle, uh, not by chance. There's a reason why it's called a struggle. It's because of such things that we are dealing with the enemies of the people that has got so much uh, power and the ability to bring to the local government or the government in Ghana or create its own uh, satellite government in, in Ghana that will uh, suppress and repress everything that has to do with real Pan-Africanism. But I appreciate that background. I will be happy to talk about later in a few minutes about the sister organization and the relationship that you have with this, those who are struggling or colonized peoples of the earth or the APRP's relationship with those organizations. For now, I want us to talk about the objectives of the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. What's, what were the objectives of the party? Or we may even say, what is the ideology of the All-African People's Party. Let me go to you, John. To start with objective, this is is the most clear and concise that our objective is pan-Africanism and is concisely defined as the total liberation and unification of Africa and Africa's development under scientific socialism. Uh, and, it, and it's important uh, that we highlight that because, you know, as as LB was mentioning, you know, people not only come to Ghana, they come to different places in Africa and different places in the diaspora and they have the 
different notions of what they're calling Pan-Africanism. So we've been hammering hard that this is Pan-Africanism. It's a clear objective, a, a clear uh, achievable objective in terms of, of transforming Africa. So that is our objective. And it's easy to to uh, define and it's easy to present. Now, our ideology is currently called Nkrumism, Tereism, Cabralism. Now, I mentioned in going over the history how uh, when the party was announced in 1972, we were considered Nkrumis. Ture was still alive. But uh, Seiko Ture passed in 1984. And after that, there were memorials for him that the party organized in uh, 14 different cities across uh, the U.S. where we had chapters. Uh, We organized them in conjunction with other formations. Uh, But this was to highlight the contributions that Seiko Ture had made to of the African Revolution. And it was soon after that that the party took on the ideology being named Incrumism, Tereism, understanding the contribution that Ture had made uh, during this period from 1958 with the independence of, of Guinea Conakry till his death in 1984. So he, he, he in terms of of the three that were uh, instrumental at the beginning, had the ability to make this contribution by being in state power and promoting Pan-Africanism through uh, the work that he did there and the writings that he did. So this was an instrumental point. Now, before that, another instrumental point was in 1980 was the form eight when we formed the All-African Women's Revolutionary Union. It was the founding meeting in Columbus, Ohio. So this was a, a leap in terms of the party because we now recognized the importance of having a women's wing and the work that needed to be done with regards to promoting the role of women and fighting back on patriarchy. So that 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 is an instrumental point. Now, the, the 1980s saw us do a lot of work around the world where we organized and had organizers in, in the Caribbean from the Bahamas to the Virgin Islands to, to working in Jamaica. And we did various work in West Africa from the Gambia to Liberia, the work that, that already uh, Albie has mentioned in Ghana, but also work in Sierra Leone. And we even had our first uh, circle organized in in France and had an active chapter in, in England starting in the 80s. So so we became more international uh, at that point through, during the 80s. So to just kind of move through the history sort of in terms of, of jumps, one of the things that also took place in the 80s was we had what was called a referendum where the Central Committee examined itself and reduced the number of members on the Central Committee, which was followed then by the first general election for new members to the Central Committee, which uh, which took place there in, in 82, 80, 83, 82, 83. Um, so that, that was key. And that took us forward. And, and during this period after that, there was a, a, a call for a party Congress. And there was various discussions about how to do this. And it culminated in 1994 with a, what we historically call the 5C meeting. And this was a meeting between the Central Committee and the chapter coordinating councils of the various chapters. And at this meeting, where it was a push and a discussion around when to have a party Congress. But the key decision that came out of that meeting was the expansion of the Central Committee. At that point, the Central Committee was then expanded where it had representation 
from every chapter in the party. So this was a massive expansion because before that, uh, there were only like seven members on the central committee. So that, that, so that was, that, that took us in a direction where it engaged the larger leadership to then reach out and do various kinds of work, not only, uh, across where the chapters currently were, but a lot of international work. So we saw the party increase in terms of its international presence. Now that takes us up to, because there was still this constant call for a party congress. That takes us up to 2002, where the process led us to what we call the all-cadre meeting that took place in Chicago. And this is where we asked all cadre that could to come to come together and, and discuss the way forward. And instrumental in that meeting was the constant push and prioritizing of Africa. So it was determined that we'd be doing more work in Africa, and the time was right. Now we had now, you know, had uh, independence. Apartheid had been, you know, had ended officially. Other countries before that in the 80s had gotten their independence, so we were ripe to be able to do more work. And at that time, we had organizers in. Azania that that were doing work along with the PAC in Azapo. So that this meeting uh, also expanded the number of members on the Central Committee that were in Africa uh, and reduced the numbers in the diaspora as part of that uh, call to make more emphasis on on Africa. But still, there was this constant push that we needed to to actually establish a party congress. We needed to to, to be in line with also organizing a constitution. And that led us to earlier this year, which actually was a multi-year process where we held the party congress in Guinea-Bissau in January of 2023. And that's also where we then, in recognition of Cabral's contribution, renamed our ideology in Krumism to Ray Cabralism. So now we feel it's complete with regards to where we started in terms of the three giants being instrumental in the actual early conceptualization and formation of the AAPRP. Yes, on that, you were talking about this uh, Congress of the party. Uh, what comes to my mind is the Pan-African Congresses. I think in 1945, Ngrumo was there in Manchester. There have been prior ones which were spearheaded, or at the forefront of them was uh, W.E.P. Du Bois, which goes back to 1920s where there were conferences and then eventually they transformed into uh, congresses because uh, of the limitations of conferences compared to congresses. I just want to know what impact did those uh, Pan-African congresses have in the establishment or even just the development of the All-African People's Revolutionary Party? Well, they were key parts of the Pan-African movement. And this is why we make a point of, of acknowledging uh, those congresses uh, starting from uh, Sylvester Williams in the 1900s all the way uh, through uh, 1945, even mentioning those that were, you know, played a role but were less significant to six and seven Pan African Congress. But this is all part of the Pan African movement, and we recognize that we we have keyed in on the on the 1945 one because that was that took a leap. You know, this is where you had uh, key people like Nkrumah. Uh, and others who ended up being in leadership roles in Africa after uh, the the uh, independence of not only Ghana but other countries in in 1960s. So this sort of set the tone for for the push for the end of colonialism, and it also 
uh, set the tone for a call for a unified Africa under socialism. So there are key aspects out of that Congress that we all draw on, uh, not just the AAPRP. In the early establishment of the party, I will expect that the Central Committee will commission uh, the cadre to go and organize in various parts of the world where Africans are. We haven't spoken about that uh, quite precisely. Yes, we have spoken about, you know, organizing in North America, West Africa, in Azania and stuff like that. But I know, uh, at least I'm aware, that the parties all over. It, I, I'm not sure much about, I don't know much about the Caribbean, but I know in Europe I've recorded with uh, Maxine Davis an episode here who is, in Af- who is in Europe, particularly in England, and they have a study cycle there. So I'll be interested for the record to have that kind of history of in the establishment, um, how it's been uh, the commissioning of uh, cadres to go around uh, the, at where Africans are to, uh, to organize, including the Caribbean too. Uh, I'll be happy to hear that a uh, piece of that. Even uh, Abi, Abi, you can come in there if you have some uh, history to add. Yeah, again, I don't have a lot of. I'm sure John will have much more specifics and more detail. Uh, but I am aware that that's been from my initial time in the party. You know, one of our principles has been the primacy of Africa. So it seems like uh, many people who come to the organization have a, have an interest in not only redeeming or liberating Africa, but coming and traveling to and being and living in Africa. So uh, my early years in the AAPRP, that was definitely on everyone's many people's minds, if not living there, at least how to get there to spend some time there, because we know the history, know, you know, that's our future. It's dependent. So if we're fighting, you know, police brutality in America and we go and get an African police chief or an African mayor or most recently even an African president, we're not surprised when these problems aren't solved. They're still killing us, you know, with, with impunity. So that was clear to us at an early time in the APRP that Africa was certainly a desired option. You know that we should look into, and you know, to the extent that we could. Of course, for economic reasons, most people can never even consider an international travel. You know, you're just trying to live and survive and make, you know, make put some food on your on your table or your family's table. So the idea of uh, you know spending thousands of dollars to go across the ocean is not an option for many people. But certainly, it's kind of like Marcus Garvey. You know, even though he never went there, it's in his mind. It's always his focus. Coming up in the APRP, that was definitely a focus. So when the opportunity presents itself, there's generally a pretty wide uh, inc- uh, response or enthusiasm to those opportunities. So in my time, I know there were opportunities to do study projects in Libya, in Guinea-Bissau, in Guinea, etc. And, uh, you know, there was a process that would go through, that the organization would go through to identify who would be supported and encouraged to do that kind of thing. Um, but And similarly, in, you know, now having, uh, you know, spent time here in West Africa, we, you know, we know there's similar moves that happen all the time because, you know, we have Africans who are Ghanaian nationals, but their mother's born in Togo. So they go, we move back and forth to do organizing work across these neo-colonial borders because, you know, they really don't make any sense. So it continues. And again, it's there, I can't, I'm not, I can't speak to the specific projects or opportunity examples where, say, the APRP sponsored someone. But certainly it's been uh, in, enough in our mindset that whether it's paid for or supported financially by an organization, the APRP, we want to make, we're going to make it happen. Whether it's, you know, finding a job, the opportunity to go to university abroad 
or in Africa, uh, or whether it's finding a job or whatever. But most people will, will who are many Pan-Africans who are not born on the continent will do that. And then, as I say, even those born of us and born in these micro-national entities uh, look to travel. You know, those of us in the, born in the West want to go and see what East Africa is like, what Southern Africa. So it's a common experience. And so again, I think the party just encourages and supports that. So once that the seed is planted, if there's any opportunities to do so, whether it's coming, we had a, a number of Africans here for the 50th anniversary of the AAPRP uh, celebrated here in Ghana, observed here in Ghana in uh, 2018. And so a number of Africans came, students and folks from Azania, from East Africa, from the US, from Europe, were hungry to come to Africa uh, because we study it, we know so much about it, and we know how important it is to the future. So many who had never been here before had a chance to come through that, uh, through that meeting. And you are evidence of those people who transmigrate uh, in organizing. You have come to the motherland and uh, to Ghana. You've been living there for a number of years. You're organizing there, and we appreciate your work that you do. You do there, and, and for for the part as an international party, John. Maybe you might want to speak to this specific. I've, I've heard to learn elsewhere that um, in the early years, Kwame Ture was sent to organize in North America, and I think somebody was sent to the Caribbean. I think you will also be interested to get to the record that kind of of history if uh, there is any accuracy to it to what I came to my ears uh, some time ago. Uh, actually, you know, several organizers uh, went to uh, different places in the Caribbean at, uh, uh, at different points: uh, the Virgin Islands, Jamaica, uh, Guyana, uh, for short visits, and even uh, uh, some who actually stay, lived there for years. But I'd like to link the, the this international effort the party has more to our our campus strategy, mm. our university strategy. And think back, even the one of the first readings that we have in work study, the very first ones with those two pages from Consciencism where Nkrumah talks about, you know, the different types of Africans. That, and he was reflecting on his studies in, in, in America. And when we look at this issue of, of organizing, we, we had to reflect on the fact that, I mean, Nkrumah went to Lincoln University along with Ezekwe, who was the first president of Nigeria. I taught at Howard, and they prided themselves at the number of having more uh, leaders in the Caribbean that graduated from Howard than any other country. And then, I'm sorry, than any other school. So the university is the right place. You yourself and Pilo reflect what we're trying to do in terms of, of organizing on the campus to, to have an impact on Africans who are here from Africa or the Caribbean to think in terms of going home, to think in terms of how to make the, the sacrifice that Nkrumah made and that he writes about in those pages in Consciencism. So more, I mean, I've had opportunities as an academic and as part of being on the university campus to do the kind of travel that Albie talked about, you know, and that's what took me to to Zimbabwe and to, took me serious several projects here in the Zania before I moved here. It took me to, to be able to move to Rwanda for two years and work there. But the key aspect of us organizing on these campuses, and when we recognize early in the 70s, when we say we want to, to promote people spending 100% of their time organizing on the campus, was we realized on these university campuses were the, the, the basis of the African intelligentsia that largely was here from Africa. 
And that's why we even put a priority in terms of on the campuses. We say we want to focus in on Africans born in Africa and women because we realize that the contribution they could make. And, and it's panned out. I mean, uh, uh, Albie mentioned some of the organizers there in Ghana. I think Ni was who, who studied in the U.S. and came back to Ghana. Uh, Kenyua, one of the organizers in Kenya, who studied in, in, in Dallas and joined the work study there. And then he went back and he organized African Liberation Day every year after he got back. So it's people like this that have made the contribution. Even one of the comrades I work with in Cape Town, uh, Rashwali, he was from, from uh, was active in a work study circle in New Jersey that gave him an initial understanding of the APRP and, and has made him a, a serious supporter in our effort each year for the last 14 years in terms of organizing African Liberation Day. Thank you for that, uh, John, that history and Abby in relation to uh, just organizing, spreading in uh, the party internationally. And one of the things that when I was talking about international organizing, there is constant running into other oppressed people of the earth who are organizing in various dimensions, socialist parties all over the world, and then other uh, organizations that are trying to liberate themselves from uh, colonialism, from imperialism, patriarchy, and all stuff like that. Now, can we talk about the sister organizations of the All African People's Revolutionary Parties and uh, wherever they are, and just uh, contextually uh, broadening uh, more of of the All African People's Revolutionary Party's ideology and influence in the various parts of, of, of the earth, wherever these sister organizations are. And not only that, but talk about the party's relationship with these other organizations that are fighting similar badly against imperialism and colonialism and patriarchy, capitalism, and stuff like that under the banner of scientific socialism. Maybe let's begin with the sister organizations that the party uh, the party works with. Okay. Uh, again, uh, you know, we have been an international party uh, we have relationships on an international level, but we also have many relationships at the local level in various communities where we may work uh, in coalition or uh, collaboration with other pan-African leftist socialist organizations in our local areas. Uh, and that, you know, for example, here in Ghana, we're part of one of the leading uh, members of the leadership of the West African People's Organization, which is an organization of uh, a coalition of organizations from here, pan-African socialist organizations here in the West Africa subregion. So from Benin, Togo, Nigeria. Oh, it seems like Abi is frozen. Uh, Nigeria, and this... West Africa. Ah. Uh, sorry, you were frozen when you started mentioning uh, Benin, oh. Togo. If, if you can carry on from there. Sure, sure. Um, so yes, we are part of the West African People's Organization, which is comprised of organizations from Benin, Togo, Nigeria, Guinea, Senegal, etc. Pan-Africanist, leftist, socialist organizations who are all working together in this West Africa subregion. Uh, so that's just one example. So that's kind of a sub-regional group. But on local level, we have several organizations. Many of them are youth-driven, which uh, you know come, as John mentioned, a lot of the universities spur the spurn or uh, birth these activist youth organizations who begin to recognize their problems on the university campus or beyond the university campus. Uh, so we work with them on various issues and coalitions. Uh, and then, of course, on the international level, on our international website, you'll see a number of organizations that we've been with, aligned with historically over time. 
for example, the Cuban Communist Party or the Palestinian Palestinians, etc. Uh, so both African and non-African organizations were very big, very much a part of an organization called uh, called the West African People's West <laughs> Worldwide People's Pan Worldwide Pan African Movement. I'm sorry, Worldwide Pan African Movement. I think it was mentioned in John's intro uh, that he's been a, a founding member of that organization. So that comprises several specific uh, global Pan African organizations, and we work together with them. As some of them have presence in the same locations where we are, some of them are do not. Where they do, it makes it much easier to, you know, our, our base of operation is much larger. Uh, and then again, there's also political parties like uh, the TAIGC uh, in, in Guinea-Bissau. So that's another level of, of, of coordination, uh, uh, collaboration, and alliances with the uh, political parties, Pan-African political parties. So that's just in general, some of those things. And it, it is dynamic because we know, you know, the, the, there are new organizations that are born every day on the local level, and then some of them become change over time. And so we can't, uh, you know, our, our friends today may not be our friends tomorrow and vice versa. Our enemies of today may be our friends tomorrow based upon their political lines, etc. You know, we maintain our line, but that doesn't mean that there's organizations that don't uh, move, you know, here and there uh, over time. Yeah, that seems like a, a lot of uh, alliances there with the various uh, organizing forces all over the earth. John, do you have anything to uh, add to that and some of the international organizations that the party is uh, working, is having a working relationship and some of the sister parties uh, uh, that are spread throughout the continent and elsewhere? Uh, in listening to that, I was just reflecting on on the history and the, and the fact that the party, if you think in terms of, of the early 70s, had relationships with liberation movements, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s. And uh, and those liberation movements then came to be governing parties, uh, and they, these movements then had to then adopted different relationships sometimes with the party, uh, and then even then you, we can reflect on how they even had different representation over the year. I'm thinking particularly, for instance, Zimbabwe, uh, Zimbabwe. Uh, with Zanu and Zapu, we had direct relationships with them. Uh, then at Independence, they had, they had their internal uh, struggle, uh, which ended with them reconciling and forming ZANU-PF. Uh, so uh, then our relationships take on a different tone because now you no longer have Zapu and Zanu formations, for instance, in, in uh, struggling to get attention in uh, in the U.S. or in Canada or the U.K. What do you have? You have embassies that then are represented by <laughs> diplomats <laughs> and and then this diplomat who may be ambassador may just be there for a couple of years and then somebody else comes in. So it's, it becomes a totally different kind of relationship that we found ourselves uh, with regards to those movements post-independence. Uh, the other aspect of that is the number of people who were most active. Those people were most active, whether you're talking about ZANU or ZAPU, uh, or whether you're talking about the Retrian movement or, or ANC or PAC, the ones that were most active in working with us went home. You know, they then had posts, you know, so that meant there was, there was a you know, and, and many of them took on uh, various different assignments, whether it was in the government or whether it was a parastatal or independent, and they got absorbed in the matters in their country. So we've had uh, this shift in relationships, and it becomes even more complicated if, if you then think in terms of uh, Mozambique and Angola, for instance, which get their independence after bloody conflict 
but then they're not English speaking. So it's a whole different kind of phenomenon when they were reaching out post when they were under colonial rule, reaching out, identifying people who could come to London or come to Washington, D.C. or New York and identify meeting with those of us who were part of this uh, struggle to end colonialism. Uh, and, and now, you know, they have a whole another uh, agenda that they're faced with in terms of, of organizing now that they have state power. So these kind of dynamics have played out in terms of, of changing relationships between uh, these organizations. And it's call on the party to, to closely examine uh, what is happening in these various countries. The, the, the exception being, uh, the most notable exception being Guinea-Bissau and the PAGC, because we had organizers there during this whole post-colonial period, and we have members of our party who sit on our central committee and also sit, sit on the central committee of the PAGC. That's a unique kind of situation. Uh, to speak to the work here in Zania, the ANC as a ruling party has a different type of approach and attitude toward the, the former, not just the APRP, but those that were engaged in uh, in the liberation struggles because they have taken on this diplomatic kind of position. Uh, and it came clear, for instance, when they celebrated the 100th anniversary of the founding of the ANC uh, several years ago, and they asked Howard University to play a role in terms of sort of sponsoring activities there in D.C. And they didn't reach out to the APRP. They didn't reach out to any other the socialist formations because they wanted to play, you know, the diplomatic role. So they had a couple of Congress people that were there at the end during the period of the end of a of a, a apartheid, and they had others who were were less confrontational and and, and not socialist, uh, so that they could project an agenda uh, that was compatible with them working closer with the U.S. Uh, and and this is a diplomatic role that you know the different parties at different points that it wants to have state power. And they are reckoning in a world that's dominated by capitalism, imperialism, and neocolonialism, and trying to to, to figure out how to to work through that. Uh, and this is why I think as the party we had to be more aggressive in meeting with uh, those that are part of these former liberation struggles and identifying uh, those that are in these parties that are are more progressive and uh, more willing to work with us. And this has been part of. The struggle I've had here, I've identified a couple people, for instance, in ANC that are more progressive. They're not the dominant forces in ANC, but certainly working with the PAC and the Zapo has been more effective uh, in terms of of working with a, a larger number of people who are revolutionaries. And and this is the I think the approach we have to take to sort of to bring other forces together uh, in terms of, uh, and to focus what I, we're doing here in the APRP is focusing more on bringing political education to the forefront. There is a, a lack of that in uh, many of our, our sister organizations because their focus is so much about seizing state power. Uh, and, and then those that have it, it's about somehow maintaining it in the face of a neocolonial Africa. Thanks a lot for all that uh, history. Can we wrap up with some of the work of the APRP in terms of what Ngongwa Mengrumah described in the revolutionary, is it revolutionary warfare? We're talking about an African army. We're talking about 
the AACPC. I think that's important to conclude with what what are these organizations about in the outlook of Gruma and also the party relative to the AACPC and what it is and the all and, and the all African army. Can we just conclude with that and, and that that should be fine for the record. I'll, I'll comment briefly again. You know, I can only really speak with uh, much knowledge of here what's happening here in Ghana, um, but uh, certainly we're still following the program of trying to, it's really inconsistent with what John was mentioning earlier, education, uh, whether we're educating people about the role of the, the uh, mil, you know, industrial military complex, these armies that are, we have army bases from European powers and American powers all throughout the continent. What is their role? What, how can we, uh, how can we realistically challenge them in a military kind of way if we can only challenge them through organization of the masses of people who we see are sacking, you know, foreign armies are challenging foreign armies, even when they're unarmed. Uh, so what's happening is, for example, in Burkina Faso or Niger. So that's, it's a process of education. Uh, we're not, uh, and, and we do, again, it varies. I, I mentioned being somewhat dynamic because uh, the political forces change from one time or, you know, within the country. Uh, it doesn't, neocolonialism is still there, but it looks a little bit different sometimes if you have uh, one party in power versus another party, it makes it more difficult to explain and point out and make it the, the enemy so as clear as possible. Um, so that's where there's a little bit of, uh, you know, required requirement to be dynamic and reflective of the realities in the particular locations where we're working, where we're organized. And uh, so I think that's what I can say about in terms of the, the idea, the APRP here where we are is generally recognized as uh, the most, uh, I guess, knowledgeable, studied of the ideas of Nkrumah, Ture, and, and Cabral. Even Nkrumah, even though, you know, there are here people here who were resident and part of the Nkrumah government, they're generally, the population, the organizations here are not heavily armed with the ideology of Nkrumah um, or Nkrumah Ture, certainly Nkrumah Ture Cabralism. So a lot of our time is spent educating and working, providing the educational component for those other Pan-African organizations. Anything to that, John, about the AACPC and the, uh, the All-African Army? Yes, yeah, yeah, so start with the, the Army. And, and I, I, I want to echo, you know, Albie's point that political education is key and then organizing our forces because we we have to grow our forces to really reckon with with either of those two formations but right now one of the key aspects of, on on the military in terms of education is we had to make people aware of AFRICOM and this buildup that the U.S. military has in terms of trying to build a, a military force across Africa. We talk, we Nkrumah wrote in, in 68 about the need for all African people's revolutionary army, but it, it's actually going in the opposite direction with the U.S. amassing and coordinating military presence across Africa. And then, of course, we know what's happening with the French and the confrontation that is finally coming out now to move the French military out of the Sahelian countries. So this has to be part of the political education process to point out, look, this is, why, why are the French here? Why is even U.S. talking about AFRICON to help Africa? We should be us that has our army. So that becomes part of the political education process is necessary before we can actually get to, to the formation of an army. On the AACPC, uh, this is ongoing also on a political education level. And we have had, had headway in terms of of some of our sister organizations like the PAC and the Zappo speaking to the need for this. And for, at least at this point on the theoretical level, uh, there is not the formation. But what we have done, for instance, here 
is we have come together working, uh, building on the alliance that Azapo and the PAC formed to, to work with them and the NNLC to, to look to, to do a number of activities together, including African Liberation Day, including next month, this whole campaign that anti-sanctions teach in, we're collaborating together uh, in terms of that. So we see this real kind of activity work that will bring us closer together and be the basis of eventually uh, organizations coming together on a central committee to central committee level to form the AACPC. So right now it's working on the ground with these and other organizations that will help and the political education that Albie mentioned. Sometimes I confuse the acronyms, the AACPC and, and, and all the others. Can we just unpack for the listener? of um, and what AACPC represent or in the acronym. Yeah, no, AACPC, All, Africa, All African Committee for Political Coordination. And that's, these all come from the Handbook of Revolutionary Warfare, the AAPRA, All African People's Revolutionary Army, the AAPRP, the All African People's Revolutionary Party. So it's understandable how the confusion can mount because, yeah, it's an alphabet soup. Thank you so much, Albi. I, I, I sometimes, you know, when you are describing the first C, you find that I put the meaning of the first C at the end and reverse. So I didn't want to butcher it. Occasionally, I confuse those. So I appreciate that. And thank you so much, uh, folks, for coming through and uh, for all the work that you do all over the world in West Africa, in Tanzania, and also organizing elsewhere in the world uh, to organize all, all people of African descent in making sure that uh, Africa becomes liberated and unified under scientific uh, socialism. Can you just... Uh, any of you tell us how a person can uh, join the party? Where do they need to go? The, those who will be listening to the record will be interested to uh, follow where they, uh, they can find the party and information about the party and how they can join if they want to join. Okay, yeah, there's uh, several op- opportunities or methods for getting in touch. We're trying to you know, keep up as we get younger members of the organization, looking at their primary means of communication and getting access to information. We're trying to take advantage of their knowledge and experience. Uh, but uh, we have an international website, uh, which is uh, AAPRP-INCL for international.org. And that's, I guess, one of the easiest ways to, to find us uh, on the wet, on the internet. And from there, there are links to various other websites uh, in terms or other sources as well. We have a Facebook page, uh, Twitter. Uh, Facebook is AAPRP-INCL, the same as the website name. Uh, and I don't know the handle on Twitter. But um, but that, that, I would say that would be a good starting point. Uh, you start with with all Africa, the Google All African People's Revolutionary Party, and that website will come up and link you to our various methods. We also have some, for example, I know some chapters have their own website, Facebook pages to focus on local activities, programs, acti- uh, activities, uh, controversies, whatever, political education that might be appropriate for a particular location or time. So there are Facebook pages that individual that individual chapters operate, as well as the international Facebook page, Twitter, and website. Uh, just to, to add to that, at the if you go to the anyone goes to the website, uh, not only you know can they click on on more information about the APRP to find out about our work study circle political education work study circle program, which is the way that someone can actually join not only studying with us but eventually uh, actually become a member of the APRP. But on that same site, scrolling all the way down to the bottom, you you'll see all of the the Twitter, the all of the other <laughs> the icons for that, including a YouTube. 
YouTube channel that we have uh, that has been set up by, like Albie said, our younger members who know all of these uh, different alphabet soup for the social media. <laughs> so it's all there. Yeah, yeah. just when you open uh, the, the All African People's Revolutionary Party website, on the right, you'll see the form, join the APRP, uh, and it's written, I would like more information about how to join the APRP, and then it talks about contacts there. You can put up your name, your last name, your email, and they will reach out to you. Thank you so much, um, Elders, for making the time. Uh, I we have went a little bit uh, over the one hour mark that I promised, but uh, there's so much to discuss about the party, but I appreciate your patience and for coming through any uh, parting shots or any thoughts before we go concluding thoughts. I'll, I'll just say uh, thank you for your work. Uh, it's very important what you're doing. So I, you know, I'm always encouraged uh, when you, when folks exhibit some, the energy, the enthusiasm to use their talents and their knowledge for good purpose, you know, for Pan-Africanism. So I want to, you know, wish you well and continued success in doing this work and may it inspire others to join with you uh, and support the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I I think this is key in terms of political education and propaganda work that we talked about. I do want to add one caveat to everything I've said, <laughs> and that is this is one perspective of the African of the APRP's history, it, and and it's on us as a party as we as we uh, do more of our work to kind of consolidate to have what we may at one point say this is the authentic history of the APRP. This is uh, the, my view from, from my window where I sit in terms of over the years with, with the party. I'm sure Albie feels the same way. <laughs> Thank you. No, yeah, I will reach out to other countries. This will be ongoing work to make sure we record this history. I appreciate it. Have, have a very good night to you, folks. It's uh, already late in, into the night in Azania and then in West Africa, Ghana. Uh, I mean, the United States of America, it's, it's almost 1 p.m here so it's it, it's for you guys to go and rest after so much work of organizing thank you so much